Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I am so excited to present to you this episode. In partnership with the Marlene Myers and JCC Manhattan, Thank You For Coming Out is co-hosting their LGBTQ author summer series of conversations. And uh, we've already had two, but there will be more coming up. So make sure you check out Thank You For Coming Out's Instagram at Thank You For Coming Out. And you could attend live virtually at our next conversation. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming. Good evening, and welcome to the virtual Marlene Meyerson, JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm the program director for the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. And on behalf of my colleagues in the Joseph Stern Center for Social Responsibility and out at the J, here at the JCC, who are my partners on tonight's program, it is my pleasure to welcome you to our Summer Pride series. Thank you for coming out at the J with tonight's guest, Dr. Francois Clemens and his book, Officer Clemens. We hope you'll join us for other events at the JCC, including several that we have coming up next week. You could find out all about them at our website, mmjccm.org. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com, and virtual programs for the Lambert Center are made possible by the generous support of the Lori M. Tisch Illumination Fund. There should be time for questions at the end, so please feel free to write any questions that you may have in the Q&A at the bottom of your screen. Before I introduce our host for the evening, let me just say we are so excited to have Dr. Clemens here with us today. I just left him in the green room and I could have sat there just chatting with him the whole night long. You are super, super duper in for a treat tonight. Uh, so buckle up. Now it's my pleasure <laughs> to introduce you to Dubs Weinblatt, who we are thrilled to be participating with on our whole series. Dubs is the founder and executive producer of Thank You For Coming Out, which celebrates the LGBTQIA community by showcasing queer stories and identities through a podcast, improv, and storytelling. They are the co-founder and executive producer of Craft for Truth, an organization that encourages LGBTQ folks to use performance art as a way to express their stories and connect with their community. Dubs is also the Associate Director of Education and Training for Metro New York at Keshet and was recently named one of Logo's new Now Next six inspiring LGBTQ Jewish activists you should be following. So make sure to follow them after tonight. Please welcome Dubs. Thank you, Jason. What a lovely, lovely introduction that I wrote for myself. Um, and now it is my pleasure to introduce our guest for this evening. I can't believe that I get to do this, but I, here we are. All right, here we go. Dr. Francois S. Clemens. Ah, okay. Received a Bachelor of Music degree from Oberlin College and a Master of Fine Arts from Carnegie Mellon University. He also received an honorary Doctor of Arts degree from Middlebury College. In 1973, he won a Grammy Award for a recording of Porgy and Bess. In 1986, he founded and directed the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. And from 1997 until his retirement in 2013, Clemens was the Alexander Twilight Artist-in-Residence and director of the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir at Middlebury College in Vermont, where he currently resides. 
maestro, doctor, <laughs> honey child. <laughs> welcome. Yes, indeed. I am here and I'm ready. I'm checking in. Mm. Yes. I'm what so happy. What a wonderful happy. introduction. I'll get that <laughs> check to you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it looks like very sunny. Are you are you outside or like I'm on my room? porch. I have a beautiful front porch. And if the, the glare is not appropriate. Oh, you're fine. I'm okay. Yep. because uh, I can see that, but um it's it's a wonderful, wonderful space that I built onto the house. And I sing out here and I rehearse most of the time. Oh, my voice is warming up. I'm getting ready for you. I am thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we all have multiple coming out stories, multiple coming into ourself stories. And so I invite you to share one of those with us tonight. Well, thank you very much. I I had I had several. I came out several times. <laughs> oh, that is too funny because uh, Fred Rogers did not want me to come out. Uh, seems like in the early days nobody did. My parents didn't. The church didn't. That my my professors, my teachers, they all uh, advised me to stay in the closet, and it was not easy. That I can tell you. So the one story I want to share with you was when I went to Oberlin College. And uh, I met someone whom I really, really, I think the first time I fell in love, I knew I was in love with someone. And he uh, was in the closet. His father was a, uh, a Baptist minister in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the last thing he was going to do was come out because it was a black Baptist church where they sang praises to God and sang a lot of curses on black people, on, on black gay people. So... One day I was saying goodbye to him in the conservatory of music. And we were standing pretty close, but you know, when you're intimate with someone and, and you're saying goodbye, and I didn't realize and neither did he that somebody was watching us. That somebody happened to be a wonderfully outstanding friend of mine later on, Glover Patrick Parham from Birmingham, Alabama. And Glover said, now, honey, what y'all doing? He had a Southern accent. Now, I know very well what y'all been doing, so you might as well go ahead on and tell me. I screamed inside. Please stop this nightmare. I thought my heart would stop from fright. My mind raced a thousand miles a minute, and I just knew I could no longer conceal my heart's love. Reluctantly, I paused. I gave a swooping mock bow. Mustering as much charm as I could, I graciously invited Glover into my practice room. (laughs) The alternative was his resounding baritone voice announcing my secret courtship to everyone in the concert hall. Accepting my invitation, he moved in dramatically. He sat down at the piano, absorbing all the air around him. He sat high and regally erect, facing the door like a queen taking her throne. I entered the practice room right after him and quickly closed the door. I leaned against it, securing for the moment my privacy, my reputation, and my temporary prisoner. 
After a moment's pause, I tried to challenge him. What are you talking about, child? I, I said, not believing myself. Don't child me, Miss Honey, he shot back. I know exactly what y'all been up to. This is not the first time I've seen what y'all doing. Down home, we call it on the down low. He stopped to let that sink in. I did not let on that this was the first time anyone had called me Miss Anything. It had a strange feeling, not altogether objectionable, as though I was now in some exclusive club. Now, I was officially gay. Miss Glover, the Queen of Oberlin, had proclaimed it. He jumped right in with the full uh, questioning. It's when somebody wants a whole lot of dick sucking and balls and maybe more, but some boy pussy and male loving but don't want nobody to know about it. Oh, yes, Miss Honey. I know what I'm talking about. We have lots of them down home. Sometimes we call it being in the closet. His attention seemed to focus even more on me. Now, you try to be still in the closet sometimes, but I know you. You know Miss Solomon or that one who just left ain't fooling me. He looked almost menacingly at me. I felt his gaze bore deeply into my chest and into my frantically pounding heart. I was stunned into quiet. Now, I've heard of many such things. Uh, happens all the time, girl. Where I come from, I can tell you about lots of them, black, white, poor, rich. Ain't nothing to do with race, honey. It's all about dick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you for share, for share, for writing that and then for sharing it here with us tonight. There's, there's more. I just gave you the core of it. You did. <laughs> or as they would say, the code instead of the core. <laughs> but he had such a command of language and of uh, I, I couldn't pretend under the, the barrage of his honesty and his knowledge. There were so many things later on I discovered that I knew uh, about him or that he knew about, he shared with me that I became almost like a, a hungry disciple of his. He, he, he was from Birmingham, Alabama, but a suburb called um, Fairfield, Fairfield, Alabama. And his father owned an apothecary, more than a drugstore. And Glover grew up around the intelligentsia in the South because of his father's education and his father's involvement and commitment with civil rights. So he had met a number of people, including the famous Bayard Rustin, who was gay openly and had some problems with Dr. King and other people in the movement, primarily out of Atlanta. But Glover knew all about that. And so we, we developed a very, very intense personal friendship. I mean, it was a, a real partner, sister, who taught me many things as I continued how to survive at Oberlin at a place that didn't really want me to be gay and how to deal with my mother and my father and my stepfather and people in, back in Youngstown who also didn't want me to be gay or openly gay. And so, my, you see, my desire was, I said, all right, I'm going to deal with these guys and these experiences. But when I get to Pittsburgh, I'm out. I'm going to go head on. So that came to that screeching halt when Fred Rogers said, 
you can't go back there anymore. No, you can't. Not if you're going to be on this program. Because the people who sponsor this program, Francois, they would not tolerate having an openly gay person on a children's television program. And he said that to me. He said, you can't go back there anymore. Now, if you choose, you, you want to go. You, you can go. And he said, but I can't have you on the program anymore. It's important for you to know that I love you, though. I'll always love you. And you will always be in my life. But the program is something else that I cannot control. It broke my heart. It, it broke my heart. So, as I said, I went back into the closet and for a year or two. And then someone had said, you know, if you get married and act straight, after a while, you'll be straight. Mm. Well, that's the biggest lie I ever heard. And no person could ever tell me, no heterosexual person could really ever tell me what it means to love another man. There is something inside a gay person who loves another man that the heterosexual person does not possess. Now that heterosexual person could be full of uh, compassion and, um, and uh, identify with our suffering and carry as allies, but he will never know what it feels for a man to love another man. In the same sense, I don't feel a gay man really understands the need of my heterosexual buddies and husbands to have a woman. Uh, and they search and they find with someone and they make a commitment, which I have never felt. Yeah, well, I think what you're describing is our 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 authentic, innate sense of who we have attraction to. And so if if we are someone who is a, you know, born, who, someone who loves men, then it's impossible for someone to understand that if that's not what, who they were, who they love. Yes. I know that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, so like what you're describing is so deep and so true. I've actually never heard it described in quite that way, but I think that's ex exactly right on. Well, and the thing is I tried both. That's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I know. And I also know from experiences that I had when I was younger that a man could tell me that he loved me, but he said, I'm not gay. Well, I accept that, that he loves me in his way, but it's not the way I love another man. And until, and this is me and my philosophy, until he can set it all down and put his arms around that same-sex male and hold on to him and say, I'm satisfied. This is wonderful. I don't need to search for anything else. I found it. If he can do that, then we can go on. And I can say, oh, well, you do know what I feel. You do understand. In the same way, and I don't want to drag it out, but I watch my male friends. I'm, I'm an observer which is also one of the reasons I wrote the book. I felt like I was an outsider, constantly looking at the heterosexual men around me. And there was one glaring example, exception. But for the rest of them, I was always aware that there was that pull inside of them to be bonded with one of our co-eds, a beautiful woman, a teacher, someone, a star that they loved, they had a crush on. I never quite had that in the deeply in 
intensive, needful way that my friends have communicated to me. It just is, I don't have the file. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that there are so many different ways that people can be in the world. And as someone who was assigned female at birth and was raised as a girl and socialized to and pushed into wanting to be in a relationship with men, um, that was never something that was on my radar. That was not in my file cabinet. And then as I've been transitioning and understanding myself as a trans person and living myself in an authentic way, I actually am starting to see my files are changing and I'm starting to feel attraction to other people. And it's so wild to me. Other yeah, people well, the that thing I- is, you're also <laughs> reading your files. Right. They've true. been there all along. Mm-hmm. You're reading them now. And yeah. you're, you're able to express in a very articulate, intelligent way so that people know you're for real. You're not shortchanging or BSing anybody. What I feel as a gay man, it's, it's feminine dominated. I mean, I love strong women, but it's a sisterhood. It's not a, I want to be in uh, intimate sexual contact with her. I want to be bonded to that intelligence, that wisdom, that strength. It's powerful. And it encourages me in my work. It, as you say, helped me to find my authentic self, which is very feminine, honey. <laughs> very feminine. But it's a unique thing that I had to live with myself. I discovered this through listening to myself, the inner voice, and when I was alone, doing things that helped me to be feminine, like trying on a dress, trying on a wedding dress, um, putting on heels, walking in my house until I said, yeah, this is me. This is me. Yeah. I love that. Like there are so many different parts in the book where you, where you give those examples of, of the wedding dress, uh, the wedding gown or, um, uh, but then what, what, and then also the, the, a quote that I pulled was, it was in those moments that I truly felt like a woman. I felt tricked into my masculine body in existence. I wrestled with my sense of having been misplaced, misconfigured, what had gone wrong, who had mismatched me. And that was so striking to me. Um, because I think that that is a feeling that so many people feel in the trans community and also yeah. in the cis community, because we are taught to be, there's only one right way to be a boy in quotes, <laughs> one right way to be a girl in quotes. And if you fall outside of that, there's something wrong with you, but you can yeah, be yeah. a man and have all of these sensibilities that you're describing. And it's, it's just so striking to me. Fred Rogers had a song, some are fancy on the outside, some are fancy on the inside. Yes, sir, everybody's fancy, everybody's fine, your body's fancy, and so is mine. Only boys can be the daddies, Mm. and only girls can be the mommies. That's right, everybody's fancy, everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. Well, that's not true. Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) I had to stop singing that song. 
I did, and we had a conversation about all the things that song was singing and teaching the kids. And very, Fred was very, uh, what is the word? He was so sad and kind of worried that he had done something horrible mm. by saying that everybody is fancy, but boys are fancy on the outside and girls are fancy on the inside. Well, what if you are a boy and you are fancy on the inside? Or you're a girl and you are fancy on the outside? Uh-oh. And then, you know, those who are trans who uh, may not choose to have children, how do you use your body, what you were given? This is a personal, the most personal choice. No one can tell you what you're feeling deep inside. If it's a woman or a man, what I think is important is we live in a country, and I've said this many times, where we have choice. Now, we have to fight for that choice sometimes. Some people try to take it away from us. But we live in a country where we can fight. Oh, what if, if I, was, I was in Iran or in Russia, I would be sent off to jail and killed. But here, we get together, put on our heels, and go down to Stonewall. And we're going to do something about this police abuse. Yeah. So, some two two the things you just said are bringing up two different <laughs> questions that I have. But I think so. Um, you were you were called to the draft. You were drafted. Oh Lord! And can and I was on the edge of my seat, pins and needles. I was like, <laughs> "What is going to happen?" Tell us what happened, <laughs> please. The thing, the thing about the draft was, I did everything in my power to avoid it. I really did. And when I saw that there was no way I was, because when I was close to graduation in Oberlin, they said, "Okay, we've waited long enough. All the black guys in my neighborhood in Youngstown, Ohio, had been drafted. They had gone. All the black ones. Some of the whites. There were some, but mostly the black. So I thought." What in the world am I going to do? Well, it was the Vietnam War, and Oberlin had a, an ad hoc group of people, some students, some faculty, some staff, some townspeople, who taught ways to, uh, to protest, to let them know that you, you don't want to go off and kill somebody with a gun. And I really, really steeled myself for the, um, frankly, the humiliating physical search that they do when you arrive there in uh, Cleveland. And I was alone. In addition to being alone, there was nobody around me that I felt was empathetic to me that I could talk to. Uh, although I know that ultimately a number of us did plead that we were either gay or uh, nonviolent, conscientious objectors and things like that. But, oh my goodness, it was tough being by yourself. I could, how could I could, maybe I could have had Glover Parham or one of my friends come with me to go through that experience, but you couldn't. I went through it alone and it was hard. And I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Um, I tried to hide. It's, there's no hiding place down here and there. There's just, you're so exposed because they make you take your clothes off. And there are lines that you have to get into, and they're all young men like yourself. And they 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 yell things at you. They they're not gentle or kind or intimate. It's 
All right, uh, Mr. Clemens, I see you're here in your next year from Youngstown, Ohio and Oberlin College. Okay, you go over to line number six. Everything was like that. Everybody heard what they were saying. And they said, you know, you're in your, what is, what is this? You, you, you hit this chart in your chart. You've had a feelings for men for the same sex. Is that what you're saying? Well, better for us to find out now rather than later on. Go over there. You go in that line over there. That was the line of shame. Hmm. Everybody in there knew and saw me just mournfully, painfully slow walking over to that assigned place. And everyone in that line, like they, we were standing with our heads down. We had all been humiliated by these sergeants who yelled at us. And then, frankly, when you go into the uh, examination room, it's very intimate with this army doctor who is just perfunctorily doing what he has to do and tell you to get the hell out of there. And they, they play with your, your genitals. They, they rub you under the arm and your butt and things like that. It's a very humiliating journey. And then it's almost like they say, here your clothes now, just get out. You'll get, to, you'll get your papers in the mail. you hear from us later on another time. So, I mean, you're so dejected. And I got dressed. Nobody in there said, oh, poor Francois. You've been through something awful. We're your friends. We'll stick by you. And I went back uh, to Oberlin by this bus service that they had. And uh, uh, I, I went straight to, I'm pretty sure I went to my room and I, I cried most of the time until um, Nikki uh, either checked in on me or wanted to know what had happened. He was very, very curious. And I told him as much as I could. I unloaded my, excuse me, my heart uh, on this relationship. I, I, the pain is indescribably lonely. You're by yourself. And you're having to tell strangers who don't love you that you're gay. It's like they have the power to punish you. But that punishment is isolation and being shunned. Being shunned is a very, very powerful thing. The church does that. Dif different religious organizations shun you. Friends, when they don't like you or they feel something and they stop talking to you. And that's a very powerful thing to do to someone. So I was very, I was deeply hurt. And it took a while for me to gather myself back together but i did i'm so sorry that happened that's just it's terrible um so you brought up uh okay so let me back up so the other the other question that i had was you brought up stonewall and you were actually in new york in 1969 well, i actually went there a month or so after 1969 it was in like may or june june mm-hmm June. And in August was when I moved to New York to live. Mm, and okay. so uh, I was married and I, I snuck away from everybody. Just decided to go out and go down to the village. I did that fairly often, quite frankly. Um, and what I discovered, first of all, there were lots of people like tourists walking around taking photographs. And these tourists were as, just as baffled as I was. What the heck went on down here at Stonewall? <laughs> And what I discovered is uh, there were a lot of open 
loose conversations going on about what had happened, how it had happened, who was involved. It was a lot of details and conversation. A lot of it had to do with the fact that there were a couple of people who jumped out of there running. And as they were fleeing, they got hurt on the fence. There was a wrought iron fence. And the fact that the ones who were doing most of the battling uh, uh, initially were the black transvestites who, I try to say this as, as gently as I can. Many of those policemen were guys who just liked the blowjob. That's all there was to it. They didn't care where it was or who it was. And they used to go over to the Henry Hudson Highway and up under the highway were what they call the trucks. And the gay guys would go in there and they had anonymous sex. Well, sometimes the policeman would pull up there in his police car, open the door, say, you over there, come over here and make that person give him a blowjob. Well, this is, was something routine. And I, I know it because I heard it. They told me. And they said, when they were in Stonewall, the reason it turned into such a fight was some of the gay guys felt they had a relationship with the cops. And they said it. The other night you were over there and I was sucking your dick and you were moaning and telling me how fabulous I am. And now you're trying to hit me in the head with a billy club. Well, God damn it, motherfucker, I'm not going to stand for it. And they took off their heels and they fought with those cops, fist to fist. And some of those cops got their ass kicked and they didn't like it. So that was what made this so horrible. So they went and got their crew and they came back with incredible enforcements. And guess what? The white faggots jumped in to help. So they had the white, the black, the Latins. They said, oh, no, you're not going to take over our our place down here. We belong down here. We're not hurting anybody. And you need to stop being a hypocrite. Because what you are doing is disgraceful. It's disgusting. And so, so to speak, it's not manly. You mm -hmm. want to have someone give you fellatio and then you're going to hit them in the head with it when they're in public with a billy club. We're not going to have it. And so that was, and uh, Lindsay, I think, was the, uh, the mayor at the time. He had his hands full because he was considered a liberal Republican. And he was trying to mend this, this profound breach. I mean, this was a horrible thing. It was a pal all over the city. The gays fought the cops and the gays were winning. And the cops came back and the gays were still winning. So it took them two or three days. And they did not subdue the gay guys. They made peace with them. They had uh, a, a summons, where they, a symposium where they got together and they began to discuss what the cops had been doing, what the gay guys had been doing, and how we need to sit down together and you need to hire some gay cops. That was an outrageous suggestion. Just outrageous to hire and teach gay guys how to use guns and do judo and all that stuff and then come down there and be with gay people. In some places, I was like asking the white policeman to hire some blacks. So you have a comparable situation today. But in that situation, it was a very uneasy piece, very uneasy. And so the gay people began to 
assert ourselves. And there were organizations that cropped up and I stayed around the fringes. I supported them when I could and how I could, but I didn't want my name or picture in the papers and for Fred Rogers or someone to say, aren't you the guy from uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, aren't you? It was a, a difficult time for me to spend ducking and dodging and trying not to. I was recognized a couple of times, but mostly by the gay guys. And they um, a thousand percent agreed not to out me. Several times mm. I just said it straight out. Please, please don't tell. the, the There was a newspaper, the Village Voice, and one of the gay uh, reporters was Arthur Bell. And I remember begging Arthur, please don't write in your column that you know who I am and that you know I was here. And he said, don't worry, that is not my job. Mm. It was wonderful. And he said, what I want to know is why you're down here, what you're doing, so that I, when I write about it, I can say I spoke to some people and this is what they said, but I don't have to give my sources. I don't have to. And so I was. Uh, that happened to me several times where I had to humble myself and say, yes, I am Francois Clemens. Please don't out me. I am gay. And they never did. That's, I'm so glad that they didn't. Um, that's, that's, it, can be, it can be detrimental in a lot of ways when people out you and when you're asking them not to or when you're not ready or, you know, for whatever, for safety. And, yeah. What's striking to me is a couple of things, which is, you're talking about like the transgender women who are, um, you know, th- you know, using their heels to fight the police brutality. And you're talking about the army who are treating you like less than human and like the army recruitment people. Um, and then when you were asked by Mr. Rogers to come on your show, you were asked to be a police officer. So you're asked now to embody this <laughs> identity that is inherently dangerous it is dangerous and so how did that what did that feel like and what kind of conversations went into that decision you you put your you just hit the nail on the head (laughs) when it comes to activities today and black boys and young men and sometimes women are being shot and shot in the back they're defenseless they don't have a weapon well they didn't have weapons back then they didn't report it as much as they do now so we didn't have some of the same uh, social uh, unrest that was turned the uh, cart upside down. So I said, Fred, you, do you realize what you're asking? There are, um, I know lots of policemen when I was young in, in Youngstown, Ohio, and they were loathsome. They were mean spirited. And I told him that, I said, I don't wanna be a cop. And he said, but Francois, you could be a helper. You could be a helper. You can help somebody. People would turn to you. And when they turn to you, you would be able to give them a helping hand, whatever difficulty they were having. Like there was a building down in Florida that just uh, crumbled. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, emergency people and first aid and Red Cross, all of them. And he said, you could be there to hold hold a child's hand or to help him find his mother, help him find his father, help him find his group. If he's with a school group and he got separated, there are many things 
that you can do, Francois, that will help to change the um, uh, the identity, the feelings of, of what policemen have done. You can mend many things if you would allow this to happen. And I felt Fred was deeply sincere. And it, it, it was not easy. I'll, I'll tell you that. I'm not uh, a pushover. But the truth is, Fred was white. He was powerful. He had money. He had a show. He was showing me a certain kind of affection so that emotionally I was becoming very bonded with him. And then for him to ask me to do something like this, I was torn because I was saying, well, here is the man who's going to help me have a career. There are things and places that I had not sung, could not sing. And at the same time, he's taken away who I am. He's taken the, the, the very substance of me out. And I hate to say it like this, but it's like he took it out and he threw it away and said, you don't need that. That's not good. That's not. And then when they used to say, oh, that's not who you really are. They didn't know who in the F I was. And they were wrong. I write about that. I'm, I'm putting together a poetry book. And in the poetry book, I talk about men who, who uh, say to me, uh, you belong with a woman and you belong um, in a wedding, a marriage, those kinds of things. And you'll, you'll father children. And I said, they don't know what I feel. They don't know who I am. They don't have the wisdom or intelligence to explain to me what it means to be gay. I need to start writing this down myself. I need to stand there and say, no, 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 no. I don't want to go out and wash cars. I don't want to go and fight uh, baseball or fight in um, uh, boxing. There were some very rough football things that some people love it. That's their business. I wouldn't prevent anybody from doing it. But I don't like that kind of physical banging around and hurting, breaking somebody's leg. No. They Then if they don't know that about me, they don't know who I am. And that's what I eventually said to myself. These men have never loved a man, honey. Not like you. So they're not going to understand what you're talking about. They'll tell you what they're thinking about and feeling, but they cannot tell you what you feel. And so I took my power back. I took it away from them. I said, I'm not going to ask you anymore because I have learned the hard way that you don't know. You can't say you don't know, but you don't know. And if you don't know, then why in the F are you going around here trying to tell me what to do? And you've never been there. I began to feel, you know, like I'm charting new territory. I was looking for gay men and gay stories and gay plays and books, everything to try and find out who I am. And you see, that search started when I was very young, 11 or 12, because when the guys began to go through puberty and they were so interested in P-U-S-S-Y. And I was not. I was very happy with my buddies. I was so happy with them. I never wanted to change. I never I wanted to. Uh, uh, Hiawatha said to me, oh, man, if you keep singing like that, you can have a different girl every night. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> uh, 
uh, after that concert, we're going to lock that door and it's just going to be you and me. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You don't want to do that. You want to open the, let all the girls come backstage. Well, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit funny now, but he he just had no idea. Yeah. No. Um, so what's, I have a, so you were talking about your, your craving this like representation and you're like, where, where can I see myself reflected? And in every, in every episode of this podcast, I try to have my guests share a ring of keys moment. So a moment of like recognition in somebody else, which was coined by Alison Bechtel, who went to Oberlin, which I I also think I know Alison Bechtel. Amazing. I do. So, uh, do you have, yeah, I haven't, I haven't met, um, Alison, but I, I love her work. <laughs> but do you have a ring of keys moment where you where you finally like saw yourself reflected in a sense of visibility? Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you. First of all, it started with James Baldwin. In high school, um, my uh, English teacher, Mrs. Coolins, talked about the fact that he had written several books. The Fire Next Time. Uh, uh, tell me how long the train's been gone. But that came out later. Uh, oh, what were those? Uh, Native Son. Uh, he wrote some some wonderful books, and then he he wrote Giovanni's uh, Room. I think it's called Giovanni's Room, and in that, two of the guys had a overtly love relationship, had a homosexual relationship, and I just couldn't get enough. I read it over and over and over, and then she began to tell me about Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, Conte Cullen. There were a number of Harlem Renaissance writers who were gay. And we are finding books that they wrote now, autobiographies that were kept silent. Off the, they were not printed mm. because they, to, they told their stories. We didn't think they did. But the, I was reading in the New York Times and there's a certain writer and they were doing some research. I think it's either down in North or South Carolina or even New Jersey. They have been finding these scores, handwritten by uh, like Claude McKay. And uh, I can't think of who some of the others were, but they were gay, but they didn't say it. Then she, after uh, Langston Hughes, she said, when you read the poems, when you read, see it as, as a man talking to a man, Francois, she never came out and said, you're gay. Are you gay? She just kept pushing, <laughs> pushing the gay stuff. And then she introduced me to a writer called Mary McCarthy. And she had written several books that had openly gay men in relationship. And then one of those books was like Alexander the Great and his lover, Hephaestion, who was a soldier in the Roman uh, Macedonian cavalry. And in this book, it's like a love story between him and Hephaestion. They did everything together. Well, they were out on the field of battle fighting and, you know, killing and maiming. And so everybody, I'm sure, assumed they were butch. But at night, they were in bed together. They were in bed together for a long time. And the general consensus, I'm not perfect on it, was that Hephaestion was his lover for his entire life. He had an affair with the Persian boy. When you when he got uh, 
conquered the Persian nation, which is Iran, Iraq, um, uh, you know, the um, Afghanistan, that area. He uh, stayed away from Macedonia for years. And the Persian boy was like given to him by one of his conquerors. And at first he didn't want him. He said, what is this? Well, what he discovered was that there were many things the Persian boy does for you that make your life more comfortable. Uh, he was like a personal maid or uh, a man in waiting who did his hair, washed his back, slept with him also when he was with Hephaestion sometimes. And he would say, sleep out there because Hephaestion is here. But when Hephaestion was not there, the Persian boy. So they have the first part and the second part. Well, I read that. I thought, what? Mm, yeah. <laughs> what is Alexander the Great then? Is he a warrior or is he gay? As though you couldn't be both. Right. And then I thought, well, he's very masculine. He leads the, the army. Uh, he leads the charge. He was considered, you know, like living a charmed life. The gods, he was the son of the gods and all that crap. Well, I was reading that stuff and thinking, that's not Nelly. That's not weak. That's a much better word. He has a, a way of asserting himself and he's gay. He's acting gay in every way except calling himself. And he wasn't hiding it. In fact, sometimes uh, Alexander was depicted as being short. And Hephaestion was almost six feet tall. So some people sometimes he conquered and they brought tributes to his army. They walked humbly with their faces down and carrying their tribute. And when they got to where Hephaestion and, and uh, Alexander was, they put the tribute under the feet of Hephaestion. And Alexander and Hephaestion and, and the, the members of his entourage laughed. And they won't know, why are you laughing? We have brought you this, this gift to show our humility that you are our new king, our emperor. And he said, because you gave it to Hephaestion, not to me, I am Alexander. And then of course they were ashamed and they were asking for great forgiveness. And he said to them, no, 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 not to worry. We are one and the same. If you give it to him, you have also given it to me. Well, child, I was no good after reading all that. <laughs> <laughs> That was the thing that made me understand how strong a gay person could be. And the, the Harlem Renaissance guys taught me that it was okay to write about beauty uh, and memories of, of the Nile River, the history of my people. And I began to, uh, especially like Claude McKay and some of the guys, they talk about the beauty of black skin, the sun that shines on my black skin. And there were a number. They weren't the only ones, but they were the ones that I began to say, oh my goodness, <laughs> somebody thinks I'm beautiful? Mm. I didn't for a long, long time. And now sometimes when I go past a mirror, I just can't keep going. I something, damn, you know? <laughs> Child, you are looking good. Mm. You just go head on because you, you got it. I have a mirror right behind my computer, so I catch myself <laughs> staring <laughs> in it all so the time. So you can see yourself. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, mirrors are very important. I have a whole lot of them in my house. And uh, I, I, I do it partially because I dress. And I want to be able to see myself in this bedroom, that bedroom, the living room, out here on the porch, everywhere. And because when you go somewhere, you know, you could be untucked or this could not be hanging right and you want to fix it. 
and then you go out and get in the, <clears throat> in the limousine, huh? And you know it's already done. So if you have your shoes are not right, your socks. So I'm constantly, not from the standpoint of being overly persnickety, but just the idea that uh, I want to be done well and proud of what I I am. And now you're dressed very casually. Yes, yes, I am. That's okay. That's my mo is casual, and I and I wear Ohio State in our in honor of our yeah, Ohio. You wear connection. that a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm known I have, for it. Uh, <laughs> I have stuff from everywhere because when I traveled, I got t-shirts, sweatshirts, and a couple times I got um, hoods. But mostly, I like mugs mm. because I drink coffee every day, and uh, I give the um, the mostly the t-shirts. I give them away. Oh, that's I nice. give them away to my cosmic boys and girls and to um, young people who come around. I look back there in the closet and there'll be five or six of them back there. And I say, oh, let me go out here and give these to these children. I'm never going to wear them. And I'm, I'm never going to wear them out. Yeah. So the best I can do is if it's really big and, and you know, loose, I can sleep in it. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a whole drawer of T-shirts just to sleep in. <laughs> there you go. Aren't they the best things in the whole world? Yep. Or for when I'm going to paint one day. <laughs> what are you an artist? No. Like, you know, sometimes people like have like pants, like shorts or t-shirts. Oh, for when I paint. But I don't, <laughs> no, I don't paint. <laughs> I've never heard that. I'm not going to oh. be painting anything. Oh. <laughs> you know, I can't get up on ladders anyway. So mm. uh, I had two strokes. And when, after I had the second stroke, uh, basically the doctor said, you're so lucky. Look at what I can do. All of my feeling and dexterity came back. And I'm very grateful, but some things he said, you'll never run again. And I don't agree, but I, I'm, I'm mindful of trying to be healthy and well. And one of the things is stay off of ladders. I barely want to climb stairs yeah. because of my uh, breathing and because of the, I've had knee replacement surgeries and, you know, life is still wonderful. We can replace most of this body, except maybe some of this. <laughs> <What's in the laughs> brain? But uh, I tell people, they say, well, how do you do it? What happened? Because when I had the stroke, I was paralyzed on the left side. Mm. I got quiet and I, I meditated, which I still do. I started a thing called Delta Meditations on Wednesday nights here in Middlebury. And in that time, during that time, I talked to spirit about, talked to my people who are there about spirit. There is something in the world, something in the universe, which we are all a part of. And I help them. I'm I'm a, a convener, I call myself. I'm someone who sits at the door and says, calls the universe to be with us. It's already with us, but we are acknowledging and we are opening ourselves up, not just our brains, but our hearts. You must open your heart. So we talk about unconditional love. We talk about truth. We talk about forgiveness. And we talk about trying, starting over again. We talk about non-judgment. No judgment. Many times, oftentimes now, when I think of what people did to me, or I think about my stepfather, my mother, people like that, I said, that's over. That have, I never thought I would ever say something like that. But in 1988, I experienced... Oh, like a rebirth. I can't explain it. But I knew, I mean, I really knew that my parents had done the very, very best that they could. 
Now it was effed up, but that was their best. Mm. And I can accept that and move on. It's done. They can't do it to me anymore. As a matter of fact, towards the end of my mother's life and she, uh, she and I were not close, but sometimes I went around and sometimes I, uh, I did do things for her. I recognized that I was the teacher and my mother was my student. She uh, had lots of judgment and uh, it wasn't just judgment against me. There was petty gossip and, and uh, stuff. And I used to say to her, why? What is gained Yeah, with that mother? You don't have to do that. You don't have to be there. That is not who you are. And we had some words, but, you know, and I'm speaking to you on the deepest level. I was no longer her son. Mm. So she didn't like what I said, and I knew it was my place to be patient, to be kind. I had to hold the mirror up to her, to my mother, and tell her what a wonderful person she was and how much good she had in her. But that's what she had to stress instead of all that other stuff with those other people that she she caused a lot of uh, disturbance in her life. And when I was around her, and uh, I I stayed with one of my sisters, but when I was there in Youngstown, I began to realize that she she stirred up, fomented discontent, and she drew it to her, and she labored over some of the things that those those people were doing and I thought that is the most unimportant thing in the whole friggin friggin world and so I used to I used to bless her so that's that was an experience becoming the the, the parent to my mother yeah absolutely I find I'm teaching my parents all about my trans and my gender queer identity all the time you have been been called you don't have any choice you must teach us yeah you must. It's, I and I do my best. I um. Sure. I there's a question that came from an audience member that I think fits exactly what we're talking about right now, and it's you have such a positive energy and spirit. Can you talk about how you sustain such positivity, especially in such difficult times? I think alluding to you know the relationships with your mom and your stepdad, and you know the racism that you experienced and the homophobia that you experienced. Um. How, yeah, how do you keep such positive energy and spirit? Well, I don't want to be simplistic, but I, want, I don't want to give you a simplistic answer. Okay. Fred Rogers. Uh, I realized after a period of time that I was his, I was his um, uh, student. He was my mentor. And what he was doing to me and for me, I was in school. And Fred was blessing me. And it's like he called me to come and follow him, to be like him. The things that he talked about, unconditional love to me. When he said, I love you just the way you are, you make every day a special day. I, the first time he really, I went, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I went crazy. He said he loved me. Well, oh man, he said, I've been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. And he held me. And there was such like a starburst. And I no longer ever saw him as a white man. I saw him as unconditional love. I could see it when I looked at him. We used to look at each other. And he would bless me as his, 
is intern. He knew. And so whenever things were bad, he said, don't stay down there. At Cincinnati, where they, the conductor said some things to me. And another place in Sewickley where I, they did not, they wouldn't let me sing with the opera people. And my classmates and peers were all going to places. And the Metropolitan Opera, you know, I was sexually harassed by people involved at the Metropolitan Opera. And so I never made a debut. And Fred said, don't worry about them. Come over here. And he helped me not to hate them. Don't hate them, Francois. They're doing the best they can. And he said it to me, you don't belong. You don't belong over there. And one of the things that I felt, and I didn't, uh, it wasn't easy, but as long as I could hold on to that, then I could go out and do other stuff. And Fred was the the most generous man you could ever imagine. I mean, I used to ask, say, Fred, how come you're doing that? Why do you? Why are you so so nice to me? And first he said, "Well, <laughs> I love you." I said, yeah, I know what a lot of daddies said. I feel that that's what daddies do. Mm. That's what I'm doing. I'm a daddy. That's what I'm supposed to do. I said, "Oh, you love me?" He said, "Yes, I love you." I was in the inner circle. How come? How did I get there? Poor, black, didn't have any money, uneducated. The only thing I could do was sing a song. Child, I knew what I was doing when I was singing. But there I was with this man who helped me to understand that I had the same gift that he had. I just had to have the courage to use it. Mm. The courage, so to speak, to let it shine. Don't hold back, Francois. Give what you have to give. You've been given something special. And so when we talked, we talked as peers. I, I knew things about the ghetto, about hunger, about being beaten, about being outside and being cold. He didn't know any of that. And he asked me, what was it like? What did you feel? How did you, his father never beat him? My daddy beat me fairly regularly, my stepfather. And I said to him, I hated him. It hurt. It was abusive. And he said, oh, I never had that friend. What was it like when you um, wanted, needed a new coat or needed a new pair of shoes and you didn't have the money and you couldn't, your parents didn't have it or they weren't going to spend it on you? And I said, I just believed in God. I never stopped believing in God. No matter what things were happening, there was a, a, a communication that I developed and I was encouraged by him to do this, to go into my so-called so uh, secret closet, is how they say it. Go into your secret closet and talk to God, Francois, and he will give you an answer. He will help you. He will show you. And time and time again, I'm not a millionaire. I'm never going to be a millionaire, damn it. But <laughs> I'm, all, of my, all of my needs are met and taken care of. And sometimes, and I really mean this often, it's like miracles that show up on my doorstep. Someone will come here from California. She had made this gorgeous blanket that I have around there. She said, I came all the way from California to give this to you. Wow. And that's what I said. Wow, <laughs> what is wrong with you? And then she told me her story and how much Fred and I meant to her 
and she had just seen the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And she said, I just had to come. And I'm in a place now in my life where I, not only do I do Zoom sessions like this, where I'm deeply, deeply committed, but I get, I get emails, I get texts, I get letters. Oh my, I must have about eight or nine books. People send them to me in the mail, autograph and send them back. Wow. And I hired somebody, you know, come in and help me part time. It's just too much, but we're caught up right now. Nice. Uh, it is nice, <laughs> believe me. It is nice. And I probably won't do any serious uh, involvement until after the 4th of July. But that is because of the book that I, I wrote that I told how much I love yeah. Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I, I talk a lot. Did you have another question? I have two more questions for you. You talk, you say the exact right amount. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how did you get connected with Mr. Rogers? You, you talk about your relationship and how much he, you meant to, meant to each other, but how did that come about from initially? Well, I, I met him through his wife, through Joanne. We were in the, the choir at Third Presbyterian Church. I was the tenor soloist. And Joanne, as it turns out, was the, the money behind the musical program. Mm. So she was sitting up there and we were telling jokes and all that and laughing. And she said, oh, you have to meet my husband. I said, well, I don't need to meet your husband. I like you. We're having a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of thing. She said, oh, no, you, you're going to love him. And when people say that, I kind of look at them. You're going to love him. Well, one day after rehearsal, I did meet him. He was very nice and humble and uh, sweet and loving and all that. Then I did this program on Good Friday where I did what we call those Stations of the Cross. Uh, like they do at Christmas time, they have the lessons and carols. Do you, you know what that is? Mm-mm. They sing uh, about the shepherds, the wise men coming, the baby Jesus, born in a manger, silent night. All of that is what they call um, uh, the station, not the station, uh, lessons and carols. And they sing Christmas carols in French, German, Flemish, Italian, whatever. So I said, why aren't they doing it for American Negro spirituals? Well, I'm going to put together a program of Easter. Oh, he never said a mumbling word, not a word, not a word, not a word. And it goes on like that. There are these songs. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So there are series. Thank you. There's a series of those songs about that. 
those stations of the cross where he carried the cross and he was whipped and he was abandoned. He was alone. So I, I put those together and I asked the preacher if he would read the scriptures that were, would, you know, go with that particular spiritual. And he said, yes. Well, the church was packed. He said, we've never done anything like this on Good Friday. We do a very quiet little service, maybe have uh, communion and leave. So the people came up and they were, they were so touched, deeply touched. And I was about finished. I was saying, you know, goodbye. Thank you very much. And they said, just a minute. Wait, wait, wait. This is Fred. Remember, he wants to talk to you. I said, oh, what he better get over here. So <laughs> he came over and we talked. And he told me how much he loved my singing and that he wanted to take me out to lunch. And I said, Mr. Rogers, I'll be very glad to go to lunch with you as long as you're paying for it. <laughs> I'm not going to be paying for any lunch. And I was so stupid. I really was. I was very stupid. And so he took me to lunch and stuff. And once again, after a few weeks, a month, three months, six months, he asked me, uh, to be on the program as a regular. And that's when he started talking about a character and stuff. And I also will never forget how dumb I was. He said, I would love to have you on the program on a regular basis, Francois. Do you think you could fit, you know, fit your schedule and stuff so that this could work out? And I said, Mr. Rogers, I would be very, very happy to be with you as long as it doesn't interfere with my singing. Mm. He laughed and he told me that was the moment he knew he loved me mm. because he said, you were not going to kiss my ass because everybody else was. He loathed people who sucked up to him, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so he told me, I knew you were the one that I was looking for. And I stayed with him after that. Uh, he didn't interfere with my singing. <laughs> 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 oh, that a joke. He was saying, oh, Mr. Clemens. Oh, I said, oh, Lord, here it comes. Are we interfering with your career and with your singing? <laughs> oh, he used to make me so sick. He had a wonderful way of teasing like that. And it would be when you least expected it, you would hear this voice. Officer Clemens, your limousine is ready. <laughs> we were in Dallas, Texas, and it was 100 degrees. And he said, and we've got the heat up to your specification. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Fred, people don't know what a rascal you can be. <laughs> I don't want to go down to some limousine. The thing was, I, I feel cold weather very seriously. Mm. So when we would be in Minnesota or Kansas or Montana somewhere, I'd say, please ask them to go out and warm up the car. It's too cold. And, you know, I have my, it affects my voice. It doesn't mm-hmm. affect them because none of them can sing, but not like me. So I'd ask them, please go out and make sure. They said, okay, all right, all right, all right. They never said no, and they always had somebody would go out and they say, okay, Francois, the car is, is warm. And that's one thing. The other thing he would say <laughs> is, they brought your car around. It's a Volkswagen. <laughs> and the Volkswagens were, you know, those little Beetles. Oh, yeah. And I'm a little claustrophobic. Mm. And a couple of times I refused to get in it because... Mm. David would get in it. Betty would get in it. And Fred was so friggin' humble. He said, well, I'll sit in the back, Franz. You can sit up front. I said, nope. Nope. You go ahead. I'm going to get a taxi. 
Mm. So they began to say, what kind of a limousine do you want? <laughs> and do you want a red limousine or green? And so that was one of our jokes, what color limousine I wanted. Because, and the other thing was, they have uh, gold stars, silver stars, and copper. Which one did, would you like over your door? <laughs> <laughs> and and the irony was, I was the poorest one. I was the one that, who had the least stable home life or anything. But they were kidding me. I know they were. They loved me. But they teased me about putting a star upon my dressing room. And I'm also the one who insisted on having my own dressing room. I said, Fred, I want my own dressing room. I don't want to share with anybody. We can afford to have our own dressing room. My goodness, we were Mr. Rogers' neighborhood people. Everywhere we went, we were treated like stars in certain ways. And then these little amenities, mm. you know, about the, <laughs> about the car or about the, the heat <laughs> or about the, the stars. on your... So they used to put these stars on my door, honestly. That's very I, funny. I love being teased by them, though. I did. Yeah, that sounds really special. <laughs> it was. It was. We, have, we have a gold star. We have the silver. <laughs> we have the brass. One time you say, and we have the aluminum. We have an aluminum star. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do you want? Get away from me. Leave me alone. Anyway, so we would laugh and carry on about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, okay, I have one last question for you. And it is for all those matchmaking yentas out there. Listen up. Are you looking for a husband, Dr. Clemens? Oh, yes. Lord have <laughs> mercy. I want somebody who uh, I'm not looking for a baby. I don't want to uh, do big daycare. But I'm also not looking for somebody who's got a foot in the grave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that gives you have plenty of opportunities. I have plenty of opportunities in between. I, I'm looking for someone who wants to come and live in Vermont. Someone that will appreciate my singing and my gifts, but also have something to offer. I'm, I would like companionship. Um, I've been lucky that when I put the word out here, either one of the professors or one of my husbands or my cosmic sons or daughters, someone will come here and we watch a movie together. I love to watch movies at night. I don't get to watch them as much as I would like because I, I'm seriously writing again. And when I'm writing, the movies are set on the side. But I really, really enjoy movies. Uh, yeah. And I, I hope everybody who hasn't seen it will go out and see Won't You Be My Neighbor, because that'll give them a real uh, 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 invitation to get to know them better. Also, I have a website. It's FrancoisClemens.net. And there's lots and lots of fun things and serious things about my life and my career and my relationship with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Amazing. We'll be sure to put that website in a place where people can click it. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. It's easy will. to get to. All you got to do is go on Google and then type in www.francoisclemens.net. .net, everybody. Now, you didn't ask me to sing. There are many ways to say I love you. Wait, 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 wait. Let me say goodnight first and then do that. Oh, please. Yeah, that'd okay. be the perfect end. <laughs> and that could be the music on the way out. The tag. Yes, exactly. Yes. Thank you so much, thank, Dr. Clemens. Thank you for the invitation, both of you. We're mm -hmm. so, so thrilled. Everyone, buy the book, Officer Clemens by Dr. Francois Clemens. You know, maybe at, at your favorite local bookstore, bookshop.org, a wonderful way to support support your local companies. Yes. Um, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Clemens, Debs Weinblatt, um, all of you who joined us tonight.
And now have a wonderful rest of your evening. With that, please. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. There's the singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something special that would make someone happy, Lord. The singing way, the singing way, the singing way to say I love you. Cleaning up your room can say I love you. Making up your bed before you're asked to. Making colored pictures for the holidays. And making plays. You'll find many ways to say I love you. You'll find many ways to say I care about you. Many ways. Many ways, many ways to say I love you. Thank you for that, and thank you for coming out. <laughs> thank you for coming out. Hey everyone, it's your host, Dubs Weinblatt. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And we want to hear from you. We want to know your coming out story. Head on over to Thank You For Coming Out's Instagram page, at Thank You For Coming Out, and click the link in our bio. There's a form there where you can submit your coming out story, either anonymously or with your name. And you could have the chance to hear your story read out on the Thank You For Coming Out podcast. We're so happy that you're part of our community, and we want you to know that your story matters. Thank you for coming out.